Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, hello and welcome to season seven of Cross Section. We have made it that far. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for liking and reviewing. Uh, we're excited. We're in 2024. It's going to be messy. It's going to be chaotic. There are elections coming. There are crises. There are ongoing wars. And we are going to start in a moment with one of those elections. We've already had one in Taiwan that was sort of controversial. It's, that's all to do with China. We have one coming. It's not till November, but it still seems to dominate our headlines almost every day. It is, of course, the U.S. election. And we are going to turn to who is likely to be standing, who are likely to be the two remaining candidates. And it appears like it's deja vu all over again. So, Danny, who are we going to be watching in the U.S. elections? Well, it's going to be Donald Trump and Joe Biden facing off against each other. The first two contests of the primary season saw Donald Trump fairly swiftly uh, banish any thoughts that anyone was going to uh, beat him to the post for the Republican nomination. Nikki Haley is still standing in the contest, but after losing in New Hampshire this week, uh, I suspect we'll find it quite hard to continue in the race for too much longer. And I would imagine in a month or so, Donald Trump will have it all sewn up. And then we, then our attention will really turn to the contest between him and Joe Biden. A month or so. Well, if it even lasts a month, I suppose that's Super Tuesdays, just over a month away, fifth of March. I believe it's March. at the start of March. Yeah, fourth, fifth of March. Uh, Alicia, you look excited at the two candidates who are likely to be standing. Ecstatic, <laughs> happy. No, it is, is a significant election for sure. Is there any chance the Democrats pick anybody else in either of your views? Gavin no. Newsom, Michelle Obama? No, there's there's absolutely no process for that. Uh, so even in New Hampshire this week, Joe Biden wasn't on the ticket. And yet people wrote in his name in such um, large numbers that he beat a couple of other people who were on the ballot. The Democratic National Convention, he's the incumbent. No one is challenging him. Yeah, unless he decides suddenly not to run. Now, we're going to come back at some stage to your election predictions, but only when the UK ones, only when I listen again to how badly you predicted it, in my view. But we need, I need to get it on the record. So you're saying no chance at the Democratic Convention, because there's some talk there could be a, a putsch or a coup or somebody could try and do something. But you're 100% it's it's Biden or bust here for you, just for clarity. I'm never going to say 100%, but that's what yeah. is going to happen. I think on both sides, it is remarkable that really quite old candidates, I'm not trying to be ageist here, but are running, both of whom repeatedly demonstrate their age in their public pronouncements. So it is possible Biden does do something, say something in the next few months that makes it impossible for him to be the candidate. But I think that's highly unlikely. Well, I think the Washington Post and its editorial said that part, just sheer life expectancy meant there was a there was a, a higher than usual possibility that one of them wouldn't make it to the election. At least you'll get the date of the election wow. right, Danny, if you predict it now. So I'll give you that. <laughs> uh, uh, let's say, what about this gerontocracy where it's old people voting for two old people? I mean, uh, is the world being dominated by the older generation? Trump will be 78 when he stands by now. Think 80, I'm right in saying, there or thereabouts. I mean, is this a good thing for democracy and for life in general? Great question. I think it's a problem for the Democrats and Republicans in the sense that they don't have succession leadership. 
fresh vision coming up through the ranks that can kind of lead the party forward. I think that's a longer term problem. I mean, I would typically be disengaged with the US election, even as a politics nerd. But I think because it's the spinoff of Biden and Trump, and in particular, how the evangelical constituency in the States are likely to engage in this election, I find that more fascinating rather than, is it Joe Biden? Is it Trump? So you've raised the, the religious aspect of this and religious convictions. I mean, Joe Biden comes from a historically reasonably devout Catholic background, but has been severely criticized for his stances on abortion. Uh, Donald Trump has articulated aspects of Christian faith, but has been severely criticized for many aspects of his life that do not align. Danny, do you want to comment first? How again, well, as Christians, do we reflect on this? Statistically, Joe Biden is the most church attending uh, president in however many years he attends mass most sundays even as president i'm not saying anything for his position on a number of social issues but in terms of church attendance he is definitely a practicing church attending catholic donald trump has definitely seen the evangelical vote in the us as part of his path to power and i think evangelical leaders in the US have seen that as part of their path to influence. And I think that kind of co-option and that, um, I don't know who it serves worse. And I think the evangelical church probably does come off worse, but people have seen it as a way of having influence. I'm currently reading a book by Tim Alberta, The Kingdom, The Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. And he charts some of this engagement of evangelical Christians with the Republican Party and with Donald Trump and, and how that partnership works. And he talks about Robert Jeffries, who's one of uh, Donald Trump's foremost evangelical supporters. And he basically says Donald Trump doesn't like people who are lukewarm. If you want to get his attention, you either have to be totally against him or totally for him. So I chose to be totally for him. And I think that leads to people kind of making excuses or allowing things because they see that as an opportunity for them to have influence in the political sphere. They think if Donald Trump's going to be the president, we want to be on his side, in his corner, so we're able to speak into power. But the problem is, is that that means that you have evangelical leaders defending, frankly, unthinkable things. And any insights onto his VP pick, given that they need to be fiercely loyal? I mean, it seems that Nikki Haley couldn't possibly be the VP. Well, I wonder if Ron DeSantis has that in the back of his mind with his fairly early exit and his wholehearted endorsement of Trump, but I've no idea who's going to be the VP pick. Sarah Huckabee in the, Sarah Huckabee Sanders as she is now, and J.D. Vance. I mean, there's certainly some interesting candidates. Alessia, last word on the US elections for now goes to you before we turn to our next story. Well, the only thing that I would say, the reason why I'm so interested by in terms of engagement wise is because here in the UK, the assumption is that evangelicals in the UK in terms of how they engage in politics is exactly the same as how evangelicals engage in the US, somewhat competitive, somewhat hostile, somewhat kind of loud and out there. And I think it's a great opportunity to encourage the church to engage in our own election and also to show the breadth of issues for which the evangelical constituency cares about as well as all the hot topics so i think that's the part where i'm most engaged in the conversations that i'm having both with church leaders and parliamentarians is do not ignore the evangelical voice in the uk when it comes to our own general election 
Absolutely. I'm very glad I don't have a vote in the US and it is great that we distinguish the issues and the way evangelicals vote here. There'll be more on that over the course of the series, no doubt. Now we are going to turn to what we consider to be the big story of the week. It is about Britain's strictest head teacher. And uh, a very, very erudite young man has written a column in Premier Magazine about this, why Christians should should oppose the banning of Muslim prayer in schools. One Daniel Webster, also known as to Danny. Danny, so you've written about this, and this is about the Michaela Academy, considered Britain's kind of strictest school, but gets phenomenal results, has a disproportionately high number of people on free school meals, but beats most of the kind of private schools in the sector, but runs a very, very kind of strict system. And as part of that, uh, a young Muslim student, and, and I think roughly half their students are Muslim background, a young Muslim yep. student wanted to have uh, a prayer time and use a prayer mat at lunchtime. The school has very strict policies around lunch, and you can say more in a minute on that. So basically, they wouldn't allow it based on their current rules, and the Board of Governors agreed with that. Um, the pupil has now taken the school to court uh, about a breach of their religious freedom to pray and to gather others to pray. And the head teacher saying, no, we are a secular school and we have policies in place to protect that. And therefore we are banning it. Danny, do you want to give us your kind of well, a bit more background on the story and why you've taken a firm view on this one? Well, there was definitely some escalation of the situation in the, as you say, around half the pupils at the school are Muslim. A number of them were praying in their breaks in the school playground they were using their blazers as makeshift prayer mats because they weren't allowed to bring other things in one people did bring in a prayer mat we saw that was against the school rules was rude to staff was subsequently suspended for two days that then sparked protests complaints vandalism against school property a bomb threat against the school so that is the background of it. And I think it is reasonable that this was causing a problem for the school. And the school then had wanted to do something to address this. The problem is, is that the school's response was to say, we won't have any religious components to school life or to pupils' life in schools. It said that there was were to be no prayer ritual. Uh, there had been suggestion that a compromise might have been finding a room for Muslim students to use for their prayer time at lunchtime for five minutes at the lunch break. But lunch isn't considered a break in the school. It's considered part of the programme of the school, where there is a fairly formal set of programmes where people serve one another and eat together. The menu is vegetarian, so different religious dietary requirements are not a problem for that. So it is interesting just understanding more of how the school operates. But what they've done is they've said, we want to take religion out of the school. And that just removes something from the life of so many pupils, both Muslim and of other faiths. And I think it also exposes how attempts to create a secular neutral space ends up privileging a secular ideology that says religion isn't important and doesn't matter. And I think actually it's harder, but much better to create a situation where we seek to accommodate and find space for different religious groups, where we have a plural space that, yes, disagrees with each other, but allows for how we express and live out our faith. And I think that's a much stronger, and I think that actually equips people much better to engage in our society. 
Okay, so we've got a question of whether it's better or legal in a moment. I'm going to bring Alyssa in. But I do think that lunchtime piece is worth just really understanding because certainly as I read about the case, I became more fascinated that everybody eats vegetarian food at lunchtime. And that is to avoid any issue with either pork or halal meat or anything else that might have split pupils into various groups as they ate because they would have had to eat separately to meet their various religious dietary requirements. So the head teacher said, no, we'll all eat vegetarian. That means everybody can eat together. And as you said, Danny, one person serves the food, one person cleans the table. They are given set topics to discuss at lunchtime. It is not considered free time, but this is the disputed time. So you've got a school ethos and then you're bumping into religious freedom ideas here and what is best and what may or may not even be illegal, thus the court challenge. Alicia, what were your reflections as you read around this case? Huge fascination. Uh, I know Brent, if you're from London, in terms of just the geograph and kind of the demographic and makeup, in terms of it is a multiracial and religious community. I've spent more time trying to understand why she places, she being Catherine Bursling, the head teacher, so much emphasis on the secular ethos, why that is her ride or die, that is her non-negotiable. And I think I have more concern around the language where she's saying, that without it, it is impossible to bring different faith communities, different ethnicities into a shared space whereby respect, honour and so on can, can be adhered to. So I think I've been somewhat flabbergasted by so much of her emphasis on the secular ethos. Uh, but generally, I think I agree much with what uh, Danny did write in the Premier article in that this has implications for the role of faith within a school setting, but also for children of faith and families that are going to either a Christian school or not, being able to see their faith recognised within that community and within an educational setting. So it, it is a significant case. And so the outcome of that, I'm intrigued to see. And Danny, uh, pushing you a little bit, I mean, are you saying this is your pluralist idea, which I certainly endorse is best practice or is, is what's going on here illegal is this ban illegal are you suggesting and is it a good idea i mean to put it another way this school essentially is setting out has a secular ethos parents have a choice as to where to send their pupils in terms of schools so i mean if i have a christian school and i say that's the ethos of the school am i entitled to say and therefore we will not create space for other religions to practice their religion so how does this begin to work out in our multicultural but also grievance well, and uh, freedom of religion society here so on the legal point uh this case was in court last week we await judgment I, I understand that two different points were being made was that this was discriminatory to muslims because of the ritualistic nature of their prayer practices so this discriminated against muslim pupils in particular but also that it infringed their freedom of religion more generally the comparison has been made this week to the French laicity, which does operate under very secular standards. So one would imagine that if this were to be elevated to the European Court of Human Rights, that actually in comparison to that, well, if French schools can operate in such a way, uh, maybe British schools can as well. I, I wonder if she will and the school will come in to kind of legal hot water because there was a way of resolving this situation that did not infringe on the freedom of religion as much as this does so they could have been justified in taking action but this might not have been a proportionate measure 
in doing that. So it will be interesting when the legal case comes out. I think it's, this also exposes other aspects of the law. So education law in the UK or in England and Wales requires schools to have a daily act of collective worship that's wholly or mainly of a Christian character. I suspect this school doesn't do that. But I also know that many schools don't do that and just don't do it. So there will be interesting things as to how this happens. Beyond the legal point, I, I think that there were legitimate needs to be resolved in this school. But I just think this is heavy handed. And I just don't think this is helping students uh, be equipped for daily life. I think it's interesting that this has caused a number of commentators to argue for much more secular provision of education. There was a piece in the Times this weekend that argued we need to ban prayer in all schools. So seeking to take faith out of public life in more places. You had Fraser Nelson writing in the Daily Telegraph this week as a champion very much of the Michaela School approach. They referred to this as part of grievance culture. And I don't think we want to slip into a situation where people who want something different to what we want we automatically assume that's grievance culture. I think different people do have different uh, kind of religious faiths and requirements of those faiths. And I think an understanding and an accommodation of those requirements and requests is healthy rather than just shutting that down altogether. I've certainly found it a fascinating case to read about and because it's, this is different than a commercial marketplace. I mean, schools, there is some flexibility as to schools you can go to. And she's saying, we are clear about our ethos. But the reality is, if you live in an area, there are a handful of schools you can go to. There's not a kind of endless set of choices. And education is not just a consumerist good that you can supply. There are actually laws, as you've said, Danny, about what has to be done. And people are entitled to an education and we need certain freedoms within that. And I've noticed a number of Christians torn a little bit between supporting the Muslim rights to pray here because they're a little uncertain, I think, simply because they were Muslim rights. And that's what you were pointing out in your article, but also a school that is trying to navigate actually quite a complex group of people coming together and the risk that one of those sets of religious freedoms is used to kind of trump other people in this moment. Alyssa, you were about to come in with a little more on this. No, I was going to comment that I've had probably more of a stronger reaction to the Times article saying that this is a case in point of why we need to ban prayer in all schools, knowing from my own church experience and also with friends that work with children and young people, how the use of prayer rooms, how Christians have viewed prayer rooms to engage students of all faiths and none to explain the Christian faith. And I would be completely opposed to that. So I've had more of a stronger reaction to how commentators have used this as an opportunity to say faith in schools is an archaic form and thought and we need to completely erase it and move in a completely different direction so totally against that so I just wanted to comment on the the Times article more generally. Yeah and I think the the French is the case in point that is the extreme version of where secularism can go and we've said you know Danny I think you pointed out in your article it's not a neutral position it is again a particular worldview it is its own faith position in a sense which looks to eradicate all other beliefs and so we've got to say certainly my view I think sharing you Danny there is your view is that that's a, a another worldview or another religious position that you're simply imposing upon people and it is difficult to wrestle out the reality. So freedom of religion is an absolute right that you have uh, under the law, but the manifesting of that belief has some limitations in schools and employers and others are allowed to find proportional responses to that. And I guess that's where this case is probably going to get interesting. What's a proportionate 
response. And the rules that these kids fell foul of had been in place long before. You weren't allowed groups of more than four in the playground at lunchtime. And that's one of the things they kind of tripped over. Now, that rule was put in place a long, long time ago, as I understand it. It was clearly not put in place just simply to try and catch this group. So that feels legally like it's probably more likely to be proportional and a, and a response that they did to a wider set of problems. But it is going to be a fascinating balance. And we're seeing commentators split on slightly different grounds than, than maybe as typical. So a lot more conservative commentators who would often support religious freedom in this moment, like the school and like its ethos. So I was a little surprised, I think, as you were saying, Alicia, at some of the commentators who might historically have been pretty supportive of religious freedom in this moment, clamping down and wanting it pushed out of our schools because they like this school and like the ethos of what it's doing. And so it seems like there was definitely some interesting commentary going on in this moment and a lot of other people being quiet because they're not sure what to say. So fair play, Danny, for putting your head above the parapet, writing an article. People can find that on Premier, where Danny has written and explained why he thinks we as Christians should be more supportive of Muslims praying in schools because it's protecting a wider freedom that we all want to claim at various times. And that is probably the big story that we've been wrestling with. We will come back to that when the court ruling or judgment comes. That has been argued, I think, this week, and we'll await a decision on that and what that can mean for the future of our schools, because we talk a lot about the importance of RSE, about education, about religious freedom in schools, and it's a topic we will return to. You are listening to Cross Section. It is wonderful to be back in season seven. We hope you think the same. It'd be lovely if you were to review, to feedback, to engage us. You can email us that quiz question. Alessia, what can people email us on? Cross.section at eauk.org. That's a guess. If not, look at the show notes. The reason I asked you is not because I couldn't remember that myself. Cross.section at eauk.org. We'd love you to share it with others. We'd love you to review it. But please do get in touch. Tell us what you'd like us to be covering. Tell us when Danny's got something wrong. And apart from that, then that's all we need to know right now. But thank you for supporting us. We'd love you just to check out the work of Evangelical Alliance, eauk.org. You will find the 2024 article I was referring to at the start about the uh, upcoming elections. You will find out more about our public policy engagement and our work and what's happening. And you will find out how you can become a member and support what we do. And with that, I'm going to turn to our final story. So we've looked at the US elections. We have looked at... Uh, the kind of arguments about the Michaela School and prayer and religious freedom in schools. Now we're on to the big story, the real argument, the one I know very little about, the traitors hit TV show filmed in a Scottish castle, a.k.a. a nice hotel, um, which is basically a variation on the kids game mafia that I am familiar with. Um, but this is where you all get together and... There's a couple of baddies and you have to try and identify the baddies. And in the process, you kind of point fingers at each other. Is <laughs> Danny, help me out. What am I missing about this TV show? Well, so this is the second series in the UK. There have been Australian and US versions. And I believe it originally came from Holland as a concept, as a TV show at least. But it's also a phenomenon. 40,000 people applied to be on this second series. It is one of BBC's most watched programmes at the moment. And because of the way they're showing it, Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, throughout January, it comes to a conclusion. So we're recording Thursday lunchtime. Tonight will be the penultimate episode. Friday night will be the ultimate episode. By the time you listen to this podcast, we may well know who is the victor. But I think it's just fascinating because it touches on questions of betrayal and honesty and trust and friendship and allies obviously it is just a game but people's emotions run very high you had a, a mother and son in there and at one point you had this man saying 
you murdered my mum. Is she up there looking down on us? Well, actually, no, <laughs> she hadn't been murdered. Obviously, in the show, she had been. But yeah, it's fun to watch. Alessia, have you been watching The Traders? Absolutely. Oh. Massive fan. A massive fan. I've been following it to the point where I, I feel like I'm a, a contestant, like I'm playing the game. <laughs> I haven't done the virtual one because I've been playing catch up on iPlayer. It it doesn't work the same way. But yeah, I'm very much invested. Um, slightly disappointed with the faithfuls that they're not seeing the obvious betrayal in their midst. The wolf amongst the lambs, as it were. But yeah, definitely been following it. I think it's great. And interestingly, this season... There was a Christian contestant or someone that said in one of the early episodes that she was praying during the night uh, that she wouldn't be virtually or murdered, taken out of the game and that she's a Christian. And so there's been discussions about whether a Christian can be on such a show like this when the whole premise of the game is lying and deception. And my view is yes, because I'm so deeply involved in that. It would be uh, incorrect for me to then be like, no, actually, you can't be a Christian on this show. Is this a deeply biblically considered position or is this just uh, for entertainment purposes that you think? Yes. <laughs> no. Have you applied, it... in fact, for the next season? No, yet, I'm not one of the 40,000. No, no, definitely not. Yeah. Go for it. It's not deeply held biblical convictions. I think that would be so. Well, no, <laughs> Anyone like... that says it does. <laughs> I, but I think the same would apply if you play a murder mystery party and you have to play a part and act as the murderer uh, when i've done those murder mystery parties it's always more fun if you're the murderer because you get to make up fun stories and lie and create a, a story around it and um, maybe i'm just finding an excuse for myself to indulge that part of uh, my my character but it, it is a game i think that is the important thing to remember this is a game yes they will win some money quite a lot of money potentially but I think it's where it touches on how do we trust people? And I think because it is just a game, everything is slightly more tentative because you you know that anyone else might be out for it, out for you. Whereas if this was real life, you probably would invest more in the relationships. Whereas now you are likely to be cynical of anyone else's motives. You don't trust anyone completely. And that's where it'll be interesting when they come into the end game as to when do they, how do they decide uh, whether they're going to vote off all the traitors or do they think they've got all the traitors off and actually one of them is still lurking amongst them? Well, I remember writing an essay on ethics at Bible College on deception, spying, could you ever justify lying? Oh, well, we had to write on Bonhoeffer and his attempted assassination mm. of Hitler. Do, you know, that's the more extreme version of that, right through to is spying any different than a game of chess was one of the things the tutor said. You're essentially engaged in deception employees. Um, at what point do you draw a line? You're, you're attempting essentially to deceive your opponent in chess to your real intentions in the moves. And he was making the point, everybody would think that's fine. But then if you articulate that, some people think, oh, no, no, you can't do that, even when you're looking at the greater good in that moment. And we were just uh, trying to process through some of these uh, ethical dilemmas and questions. I suppose if anything, it gets us again thinking, what's our end goal and, and what is acceptable behaviour? So who are you both rooting for if you've both been watching it? Or Danny, have you watched this sufficiently to even comment on this? Yes, yes. No, I'm up to date. I watched last night's episode before uh, we talked today. I It was work. I think. <laughs> it might need to talk to your line manager about this, Danny, if this is your working week. <laughs> I think the traitors are going to win. How many of them? There's two remaining. I think they're going to win. 
So you win as a group potentially rather than an individual. So yeah, if either if the if the faithful get rid of all the traitors, whoever's left shares the private pot. If at the end there are any traitors left, whichever traitors are left, they share the prize pot. And Alicia, who uh, who's going to win the traitors? Who are you rooting for? You're asking me to come out strongly without knowing who was voted off yesterday. Episode not, you know, eleven tonight at nine p.m. But I do think the traitors are in a strong position, and I would name Harry. I think he's played a blider of a game. He's used his sweetness and innocence, and seemingly he's a sweet boy in the group to both deceive the faithfuls, but he's been actually ruthless behind the scenes. So yeah, I do think the traitors are going to win. Harry specifically, I think he's going to knock off Andrew. There you go. We have some great form when it comes to predictions, so that's uh, guaranteed not to happen, I think, on this one. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for joining us as we started out on uh, Season 7. Undoubtedly, our first topic will return uh, the US elections. Whether we want it to or not, we'll keep you updated on the prayer in schools. One of these two might update you on what happened in the traders and the cultural commentary around it. I'll just stick to the big picture. I mean, we're going to have to go back to Barbenheimer at some point, aren't we? Oppenheimer and Barbie and the latest nominations. Oh, what, and, and, you're and winning your, again. I and know. your wrong prediction that Barbie would be the box I think, office. I don't think I ever no. predicted it would clean up yeah, on, the, on the yeah, awards. I think I just said it was the better movie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's a new year I'll have to have a new favourite movie that won't be the Barbie movie uh, folks thank you for joining us as we've sought to wrestle at the intersection of faith and culture and sought to apply our Christian faith to some of the bigger stories of the week so praying for you and value your prayers as the guys in particular engage in some of the policy work around that and we will see you next week for more stories and uh, more thoughtful reflection on the big issues affecting us in culture be blessed hi it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.